Well, friends, this has been a trying week, I think, for our country and the watching world. And there are a lot of things that we could say about the election, a lot of things that have come to my mind as I've been praying this week for our country. Uh, But the thing that has come to my mind again and again and again, that the thing that has sort of stood out for me actually over the last couple of months is something that uh, I have heard from both sides over the course of this election, especially as we uh, drew closer and closer to uh, election day. And that is the claim that this election is more than just an election. It's the claim that this election is nothing short uh, of a battle for the heart and the soul of America, a battle for the souls of our people. And you know, as a pastor, that kind of language gets my attention because it's religious language, right? This is a religious claim. And as I thought about my own experience of going to vote, I realized that I voted in a number of elections in my lifetime, but never before did voting feel like such a religious act. It felt like a moral religious act. And I think what this shows us, among other things, is just how much politics has become a religion in our culture. And this tells us something very important about religion. Because when it comes to religion, I think there are a lot of people out there who assume that the biggest difference in terms of religion between people is that there are some people who believe in God, and there are some people who don't believe in God. And certainly, there is a big difference there. But the truth is, if we're really honest about our hearts, and if we really take a hard look at society, we realize that uh, everyone has a God. Everyone worships, right? Everyone has a religion of one kind or another, even atheists. In other words, everyone has something that is ultimate in their life, something that they can't live without, something that they live for, right? So uh, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, this could be almost anything. It could be things like comfort, which we looked at last week, or success. It could be politics, as the previous example would indicate. It could be anything. But what this really means is that the question that really matters for us to consider is not whether or not God exists, although that is an important question. The real spiritual question, though, is which God is the God? Which God is the God that I should give my entire life to? Which God should we worship, right? And and so uh, as we consider that question, we realize that if we look around us, we think about the people that we know, uh, the people that we work with, the people in our families, the truth is most people worship the God that they think they want. Most people worship the God that they think that they want rather than the God that they truly need. So the Apostle Paul, I believe, knows this. I think think Paul has in his mind this truth about human nature as he enters the city and the culture of Athens. He's invited to speak in the Areopagus, the center of philosophical and religious discourse in this community, and we're going to read in this passage chapter 17 of the book of Acts, verses 22 through, or 24 through 28, uh, we're going to see that Paul is essentially starting from a place of assuming that everybody he's talking to has a God. Everybody has a religion. And the question that they need to, to have answered for them is, which God is the God? Which God uh, should I give my life to? And so he begins here in verse 24 to lay out all of the reasons why his God is the only true God. 
and why his God is so worthy of our worship that it's worth us giving everything away in order to have a relationship with this God. And so what we're going to do is to begin to look at some of the reasons that Paul gives us. We'll only have time for three reasons this week, and then next week we'll pick it back up and we'll finish looking at these reasons that Paul lays out. So let's pray and then we'll open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for your Word and we thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us to read and to understand, to, 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 to mark and to learn and to inwardly digest these words. You say that your word is nourishment for your people. You say that as you send your word out, it never returns empty. It always accomplishes the purposes that you have for it. And Lord, we know that you have a purpose in mind for us this morning. And we pray that your word would do that in us. Those of us here gathered in person and those of us listening at home, I pray that right now your spirit would be preparing us to hear what you have to say. We ask this in your son's holy name, amen. So the first claim that Paul makes about this God and why his God is the only true God worthy of worship is that this is the God who made everything that exists. We see that at verses 24 and 25. And and, and so we ask, well, why would that matter? Why would that matter? And the reason it matters is because human beings by nature tend to prefer uh, an idea of God that we can customize. We are the kind of beings who like to be able to curate our religious experience. And you know, this goes all the way back to the very beginning of human existence. Ever since God made us in his image and we rebelled, ever since then we've been trying to remake God into our image. That's part of the core of what sin has done in the human heart. And so if you look at a city like Athens, Athens is filled with gods and goddesses who had been made by human beings. And not surprisingly, these gods and goddesses, these idols, were essentially projections of the highest values and ideals of the community. So things like wisdom or strength or glory or fertility had become uh, uh, essentially transformed into objects of worship. And there were many people in this community, especially the Stoics, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, in a moment, who thought nothing of swapping out worship of one god or goddess for another, depending on the circumstance. They were always looking for newer, better gods to worship. I think that's a lot like us, and I think that you see that uh, just as much in our society. Um, As I've been a pastor for over a decade, I've had a lot of conversations with people about faith, and I find that people generally these days um, uh, generally assume that their view of God or that their religion should be something that they can customize. They they want spirituality, but they want it a la carte. And, uh, And what this means is that more and more people, more and more people that I'm talking to, um, prefer to revise the Christian faith that they grew up with um, to edit it, to rebrand it in order to fit into the culture that we now live in. And this is something that we talk about from time to time because I think particularly among my generation and, and, and generations younger than, than I am, uh, you, you see this quite a lot. And so, um, and so if you're uh, wondering, I, I wonder if I've done this, uh, you can sort of take an inventory, right? So um, if you consider yourself a Christian and yet your version of God or your version, your definition of Christianity just happens to align with you uh, in every way, 
It just happens to agree with all of your uh, views on the major issues. Or if your version of God just happens to agree, uh, agree with the most popular views held by the mainstream media or in Hollywood or in Silicon Valley or on Wall Street or in uh, elite universities. If your version of God would, would line up with the most popular views in all of those places, um, if your version of God never confronts you, right, never illuminates sin in your life, which we all know down deep we're not perfect, if, you're, if your version of God never confronts those parts of you but only exists to kind of give you a cosmic thumbs up in your life, then chances are you've remade God into your image, right? And, and what this also means is that we can turn almost anything into a religion. We can take almost anything and turn it into a religion. So going back to our early example, the example of politics, right? Diagnostic test. If you are driven by fear, if during this election season you have been driven by fear that if your side isn't in control, everything's going to fall apart, right? If you have been on your knees praying fervently that, 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 that God's person would, would, would sit in the Oval Office, right? If you've, been, if you've been terrified that if the wrong person gets power, everything's going to fall apart, that's something you need to pay attention to. Right? If you view people who voted for the other guy, not just as people with whom you disagree politically, but as morally evil, you should pay attention to that. If you tend to either idealize or demonize your opposing political leaders, you should pay attention to that. Right? These are all indicators that politics is your new religion. And what we see here is that human beings are indefatigably religious. We can't help it. We're never tired of it. And so we can turn almost anything into a religion. And you say, well, okay, we're living in the 21st century, and there's a lot that we've learned about the world, and religion is really just about kind of meeting our emotional needs, so who cares if we customize it? Who cares if we curate it? Isn't that part of what it means to be a free human being? The problem is this. Right? You're free, in our country at least, and, and thank God for this, you're free to create any kind of religion you want, to worship anything that you want. We're all free to do that. That's not the problem. The problem is this. No God you make will ever have the power to change you. No God you create will ever have the power to change you because it is nothing more than an extension of you. We may prefer a God that we can control and curate and customize, but all that is is just an extension of ourselves. You remember Sigmund Freud famously said that all religion is just a form of wish fulfillment, right? It's desires and unmet needs and anxieties and fears that we project into the, the, the kind of ideal of a cosmic being out there taking care of us. And, and if we're customizing our faith, if we're making God in our image, then Freud's exactly right. That's all it is. It's just wish fulfillment in action. Right? So Paul, recognizing this, tells us here about a very different kind of God. This God is not a projection of our wishes. This God is a reality that we encounter. It's a reality that we slam into. 
He says this beginning in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, right? He's not subject to us in any way. He's everywhere. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. This God doesn't need us. He's not dependent on us in any way, shape, or form. Therefore, we can't manipulate him. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says you need to turn it around. This God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your faith. He doesn't need your service. He doesn't need your sacrifices. You need him. The very breath in your lungs depends on him. Right? So he says he he begins to turn our entire idea of God around. Right, so unlike the idols and the religions that human beings make for themselves, this God is the one who made the world and everything in it, including us, which means he doesn't conform to our preferences, we conform to his. So the first point is this, the God that we need is a God who is outside of us, a God who exists independently of us, a God who doesn't need us, a God who is who he is whether we like it or not. Only the God who made you has the power to change you. This is the first point that Paul makes. Then Paul goes on, and he begins to share with us this truth, that not only is is this God the God who made everything, but this is the God who is able to unite us in our common humanity. Paul says you need a God who can unite you in your common humanity. Now, why would we need that? Well, it's because tribalism is as old as humanity, right? Tribalism, this this tendency to divide the world into good guys and bad guys, this tendency to prefer people who look like us over people who are different from us or culturally or otherwise, right? That's tribalism, and and, and it's as old as the human race. It existed in the Greco-Roman world where they tended to view people from other cultures as inferior, and so they would call them barbarians. They were uncivilized. Uh, It also exists today in in many forms. We've talked a lot this year about racism and how it's divided our country right down the middle. Um, But but more recently, we've seen this again with the election. We've seen tribalism at work in the way we have approached our politics because each side operates like a tribe. I've heard people on both sides say the worst, most dehumanizing, most belittling things about the other side. And it turns out, if you look at the research, tribalism is actually hardwired into us as human beings. Research consistently shows that we tend to prefer, like, trust, and think well of people the more similar they are to us. We tend to feel more negative feelings toward people who we perceive to be different from us. Right, so not surprisingly, sort of bringing it to the point, not surprisingly, many of the world's religions have also been tribal in nature. The God that is worshipped or the goddess that is worshipped is a God that is for you, for your people, and against your enemies, right? Many of the ancient religions just assumed that that if you had a God, it was a God of your people group only or or your region only, and many wars were seen as uh, not just conflict between human beings, but a battle between the gods, and if you won, it showed that your God was more powerful. Religion has been tribal. Again, Paul says, that's the religion that you think you want, but the God that you need is utterly different from that. The true God flies in the face of that. 
He's not just the God of the Jews. He's not just the God of this region. He's the God of all people everywhere. The God of everyone. Because he made all people. And he made all people from one common ancestor. In other words, from the very start, God's intention for human beings is that we would be one great family. This directly confronts our tribalism, our bias, our racism, our tendency to divide. It tells us that things like racism aren't just morally wrong, they're heresy. Right? They're anthropological heresies. They're a misconstrual of what it means to be a human being. This is why this truth that we see here in Acts 17 was part of the backbone of the civil rights movement, right? The truth of our common humanity was a constant refrain. And right now, as we look at our society, we're becoming more and more and more subdivided as we add categories that divide one group from another. And we are subdividing ourselves into smaller and smaller and smaller special interest groups. And when we do that, we are building walls. You have nothing to say to me. You have nothing to offer me. You can't ever understand what it's like to be me. We're building walls. And it's tearing our social fabric apart. And Paul is saying the God that we worship, the God that we need, is the God who doesn't operate according to our categories. The God who doesn't give a flip about our categories. The God who shows no partiality whatsoever. The God who sees every human being as a beautiful creation that he crafted with his own hands. Someone who bears his image, even if they reject him, even if they spurn his love. Paul says what we need is a God whose desire is to draw everyone everywhere together in his son, Jesus Christ, as one great family once again. That's who we need. So, so far, we've seen two things. Paul says, the God that you need is the God who made everything, who you can't curate. The God that you need is the God who unites us together in one common humanity, who doesn't operate by our categories. And the last thing that that, that we see, that we have time to look at, is this. That this God, the God that we need, is the God who is able to give meaning to our lives. Every human being wants to know what life is all about. Every human being wants to know what their life means, if anything. In Athens, there were two major philosophical schools that that attempted to answer this question. First, we had the Epicureans, and and Paul had interacted with both both of these groups quite a bit. We see from the way Paul speaks to them that he has a deep working knowledge of their various philosophical viewpoints. And so the Epicureans were people who believed that the gods, if there were even gods, and that was debated, were far away. They were distant. They, they, they weren't concerned with the affairs of uh, human mortal beings. And so the Epicurean uh, vision of life said, you know, the gods, if they're even there, they don't care about you. They don't care about your life and your piddly little conflicts. So life is about having the most pleasurable, the quietest, the most peaceful life you can. Don't concern yourself with destiny. Don't concern yourself with purpose. Don't concern yourself with the afterlife. Just get the most you can while you're here, out of your life. The Stoics, by contrast, were pantheistic, meaning they believed that God was more like an impersonal force that could be found everywhere, 
in all things. Uh, and, and so for them, life was actually about trying to tap into and align yourself with that divine inner presence, that divine spark inside you. And so there was a high focus on the cultivation of virtue as a way of aligning yourself with the divine. And as you hear these, you, you may realize what's actually true, that there are versions of Epicureanism and Stoicism that persist in cultures around the world today. They, they never went away, they just sort of change form, they, they adopt, they evolve, they, they, they fall under new labels. But, but today you might see Epicureanism or Epicurean ideas in modern Western spirituality, right? It's a kind of deism that assumes if there is a God, he's not really concerned about our day-in, day-out lives, and he just wants us to be happy. He's there to give us the thumbs up, right? Stoicism persists today, and that tends to resemble some of the Eastern religions. There's been a lot written on the parallels between Stoicism and Buddhist philosophy, or Stoicism and Hinduism, right? These days, though, we're not just limited to these two philosophical schools of thought. Um, we can go almost anywhere, and people actually look almost anywhere to find a source of meaning in their lives, right? So people, people, people look to anything to give them a sense of meaning and purpose. So again, because of the week that we've just had, I think it's germane to talk about the, the election and the fact that many people we know, including probably some of us, if we're honest, tend to derive our entire sense of meaning from political activism. I have close friends and family who, who I think derive almost all of their sense of meaning in life. The reason they get up in the morning is political activism. And so Paul speaks directly to these various schools of thought. In verse 26, he says that, that, that God made everyone, and then he says, quote, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So this is a powerful statement of meaning and purpose in the human life. To the Epicureans, he says, um, you know, the, the Epicureans, people who thought that God was far away and unconcerned, to, to those people, Paul is saying, God's not far away, he's right here. He is with you right now. And he is intimately involved in the details of your life, where you live how you grow up, who your mom and dad were, who your siblings are, where you went to school, all of the experiences, the good, the painful, the bad, the ugly, all of those experiences in one way or another, God is intimately involved in those things, right? And then to the Stoics, Paul says, God is not simply this impersonal force that dwells in, 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 in everything in the world. God is a personal being. He's a relational being. He's a being who exists outside of you. He's the being who made all of this, and he's a being who wants a relationship with you. And a relationship is only possible between persons. This God wants to know you, to have a relationship with you. So what this tells us, and we're going to get more into these themes next week, but what this tells us is your birth wasn't random. You weren't randomly assigned a family uh, by genetic fate. Right? The fact that you grew up when you did and where you did and with whom you did was intentional. God decided, I want this particular person here. I want this particular person here. I want this particular person here with these people facing these challenges, overcoming these obstacles. I want them here, right here, right now. That's what Paul's saying. 
So think of the, the people that we know show us this in the Bible. Think about Joseph, right? He was tragically betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. And for years, he's thought to be dead by his father. But thanks to the blessing of God, rises in stature in the Egyptian government. And then, and then many years later, uh, when his brothers come desperate looking for aid uh, because of a famine, Joseph is the one who has to decide their fate. Right? And many people would say, you wronged me, I'm going to wrong you back, go and die a horrible death. But not Joseph, because Joseph believes that God determined and allotted the boundaries of his dwelling. God didn't abandon me, God was with me in all of this. And so his interpretation is to say, you know, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's unbelievably transforming, right? Think about Esther. We, we looked at Esther not too long ago in our church. The Jewish people are facing annihilation. They're about to be wiped out. And Esther happens to find herself high up in the Persian government. Right? And think of Mordecai coming to her and saying that Esther has been brought to the Persian court for such a time as this to intervene and save her people. Seemingly random events knitted together in a tapestry of redemption and salvation. Right? So according to Paul... This isn't extraordinary with God. This is ordinary. This is normal, mundane reality when you know the true God. In other words, every single one of us is like Joseph or Esther. We can all say the same thing. I'm here for such a time as this. Right? What, what the world, what my family, what, 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 what coworkers, what, what that horrible boss, what, what the person who abused me, what they meant for evil. Somehow, in some mysterious way, God was in it. God was working through it, somehow. And this completely transforms how we make meaning of our lives, right? It transforms how we think about the election, which has been very traumatic for many people. What it tells us is that no matter who sits in the Oval Office, God's purposes are not thwarted. God's purposes are not thwarted. Right? The Bible has powerful people or powerful examples of God using pagan political leaders like Cyrus for his purposes, whether they know it or not. God can use people whether they believe in him or not. Right? So, so the idea that if God's man isn't elected, that, that, that somehow we have failed or that God has failed or that all is lost or that God now doesn't have power over the direction of our country, that idea, in my opinion, is more of a pagan idea than a Christian idea. Because unlike the Greco-Roman pantheon, the God of the Bible is sovereign over all human affairs. His purposes can never be thwarted. That's, that's what it means to be sovereign. All right, so it changes how we think about the election. It transforms how we think about the pandemic. We believe that sickness and death are the result of sin. It's part of what it means to live in a broken world. But I know people who have gotten sick, who have lost loved ones, who have lost their jobs, who have struggled financially. I, I know people who have every right to complain, every right to shake their fist at God, right, according to how most people think. But I know people like, like this who are looking at their suffering and they're saying, you know, I, I don't know, I, I wish this hadn't happened to me. It's been hard. But God has been in it. I feel closer to God than I ever have before. My, my prayer life is richer. And more than that, I can see how God is using these experiences to completely change how I think about my priorities, where I spend my time. Right? How I spend my money, how I spend my energy. People are completely rethinking their lives and seeing God's fingerprints on that change. 
It transforms how we make sense of and think about our past, our own childhood, the family we grow up in, right? Um, I was actually just a couple of weeks ago talking with a friend of mine who's a black Christian man who grew up in a majority white setting. Right? He went to a white neighborhood, white, uh, uh, mostly white church, white school, and, uh, and, and he was talking about how hard it is because the culture these days, there are a lot of people telling him that he should be angry, that he should be angry at his parents, that he should be angry uh, that that happened to him, that he was robbed of his ethnic identity, or worse, that he's living as a sellout. And he quoted this verse to me. He quoted Acts 17. And he said, you know, when I look at my life, I believe that God determined the boundaries of my dwelling. And then what he said is, he says, you know, I, I believe that God gave me these experiences because he's called me to a ministry of reconciliation. And all my life, he's been preparing me for that. Right now, nobody else can tell him that. Right? But because he believes in a God who determines the boundaries of our dwellings, a God who's intimately involved in the details of our life, he trusts God when he tries to make sense of his childhood. He trusts God's purposes in it. So all of these examples point to the truth that the God that we need is the God who is sovereign over all human affairs, a God who gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And and, and here's the truth for, for you to consider this morning. You will never know your purpose in life apart from that God. You'll never know it apart from a relationship with him. So I encourage you, ask God why you're here. Ask God what his purposes in your life are. There's a reason that God put you here. So perhaps the most important decision that we need to make in our lives is this. Not am I going to worship, but whom will I worship? Will I worship the God that I think I want? Or will I worship the God that I truly need? As we've seen, the God that we want is a God who can be remade into our image. But the God that we need is the God who can remake us into his. The God we think we want is tribalistic, right? He's for me and my people. He's against my enemies. But the God we need is the God who unites us in a common humanity. The God we think we want is far away, uninvolved, impersonal, uh, incapable of relationship or doesn't care about having a relationship and lets us do whatever we want as a result. But the God that we truly need is personally and intimately involved and has orchestrated all time and space around one central mission, to reclaim you for himself. And the good news of the gospel is this. As Paul says in verse 27, the God you truly need is not far away. He's right here. And in fact... He went so far as to send his son into the world, and through his death and resurrection, he's opened the way for us to come to him in faith and to be forgiven and restored. And one day, along with the world, remade. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and again, only you know what we need to hear because you, unlike us, are intimately involved in the hearts and lives of each person listening. And so I simply ask you to be the God that you are, the God that we need, the God who's able to speak to us in ways no one else can.
And I pray that you would, you would kindle in us faith, hope, and an assurance that we are deeply, deeply loved. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.